<laughs> we'll continue going through the list of questions that we have. Um, okay, so let's just start off with something that's technical. First thing, I guess, uh, one of the questions was, um, is D5 oil still a thing in the business? If not, what replaces it? Ah, uh, D5. That's, <laughs> that was uh, every watchmaker's uh, magic oil. Uh, well, right now, it, uh, I believe it's still in circulation, although their industry replacement um, within most of the traditional Swatch Group brands and maybe Richmond as well is uh, a 1300. I believe uh, Rolex uses uh, 1000. But everyone uses a combination of, of either one, uh, 1000 or 1300 um, to, to replace uh, the D- D5. Now, did you think there was anything wrong with D5? No, I, I personally didn't think um, anything of it. But it's the issue with D5, I think, I believe, over time is um, the degradation of the, of the oil itself. It, it starts to get really clumpy. And that's due to the animal, that's due to the animal oil inside, right? I, I don't know what composes D5. Yeah, no, D5 has, uh, D5 has uh, animal oils in it. So uh, oh. it has natural oils in it, which causes the clumping. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that that would that would make sense. Whereas the newer ones that industry uses now, they're all synthetic for the most synthetic part. Yeah. And, and engineered to not have issues like this. Yeah. What's your favorite what's your favorite oil actually? God. Um I mean I don't know, it's a combination of it, right? Like uh, you know, you know, obviously thirteen hundred, ninety ten, uh, you know, their time, you know, he's a thousand as a replacement thirteen hundred. Um Ninety four fifteen for escapement, uh, but then my choice of grease is actually Mollycott. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't like it, like and and, and not they don't. I mean, everyone has different results with it, right? I, I, I like it, you know. So, uh, what are your thoughts on the um, ninety five hundred, the blue one? Yeah. Oh, the blue one. Yeah, the blue uh, one. <laughs> I like how you knew. I like how you knew what I meant when I said the blue one. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> Chrono Grease is black. The blue one's the ninety ninety five. You know, whatever, whatever the number is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the viscous. It, it, it's a it's a decent um, grease, uh, but the issue lies in the viscosity of it. It's too fluid. You know, mm. so like with Molly, you put you put mo- a, a dash of Molly on on a part somewhere and it'll it'll stay there for the most part but if you put um the other grease it it just runs you know like wasn't it, there it a over wasn't wasn't there a problem with mollycott when it came to the cleaning machine I, i'm pretty sure a lot of industry brands actually got away from it because uh they said that it would destroy their uh cleaning machines so what i heard was that it wouldn't clean well uh, right and and the issue is I think not so much the machines, um, or the the lubrication itself, but more so the um, the person doing the, the cleaning. Right. So normally, you know, we all pre-clean. Right. So if you take a piece of wood or you you clean that gunk off, then that wouldn't have the issue. For the most part, people won't. They'll just disassemble, throw it into a basket, and then dunk, dunk it in the machine. 
without having to do an actual pre-clean beforehand, right? So yeah. that one extra step makes makes a world of difference of maintaining your equipment, maintaining the your cleaning solution, and also ensuring that the uh, that the timepiece is uh, is uh, properly and thoroughly clean. Now, what are your thoughts on pre-cleaning? Do you do you? I mean, a lot of people in the industry actually. Um, don't really do it for some particular reason, but I know it's actually it, it's the sure it's the surefire way to ensuring a uh, uh, damn near almost perfect result. Um, but I, I know a lot more watchmakers actually don't pre-clean um, as opposed to other watchmakers who actually do. I think it's more so the brand that you're dealing with. I know for for higher end brands, um, watchmakers I know of and watchmakers watch, I used to work for, um, we do do it, right? But for, mm-hmm. you know, for let's say if you're doing, if you're servicing, let's say, two or three 2892s, you know, maybe you really don't have to pre-clean because if you pre-clean, instead of doing three, two or three, you're doing one and a half or maybe two, you know, because the extra step bleeds into your productivity and your KPIs and, and all that technical no. mumbo-jumbo bullshit. Do you require your watchmakers to pre-clean? Um, I do. Uh, but sometimes, you know, like I said, sometimes they don't want to, right? And, and yeah. everyone has their own style, and it's hard to, to force. Like, if, if I like eating halal food, it's hard to force my flavored style food on someone else <laughs> they don't like, it, right? <laughs> it's like, no, you must eat this, like, amazing gyro. You know, they they don't you know, it's not See, it's not it's not up to it's not up to me to decide what they should do, right? I can give them a guideline and then whether they adhere by it, that's on them. But when the watch comes back, mostly you're like, hey, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? It's like no, 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 no. And all right, therein lies the problem. Well, I found that in my early years, actually, when he, uh, I I started to notice a drastic reduction in comebacks and in uh, clients. Uh, client issue repairs when I actually started pre-cleaning. Um, yeah. And usually I found when I pre-cleaned, I actually found more problems than when I didn't. Yes. And uh, what ended up happening is actually that the first, I mean, how long does pre-cleaning really take you? Honestly, it doesn't take that much, much long. It doesn't take that much longer than if you didn't pre-clean. It's just a little I mean, more tedious because you have to, you know, do the peg wood and you got to um, clean the jewels um, other than that, I think like um, I think it actually gave me better amplitude, better readings on the watches, and it helped me catch more problems than it, than if I didn't. Yeah. So part of my disassembly process, including included the checks and the pre-clean. You know, because there's sometimes when you do the initial checks of like the end shakes and like you know uh, the tolerances for, for different wheels and the play between you know the barrel arbor and the the barrel bushing like you, you you do those initial checks sometimes you won't catch things and then like once you really start going into it you're like wait a minute how come something that i thought was dirt is not coming off and you put it under a microscope and it's a cracked jewel you know yeah like one thing that happened when i used to uh, when i worked for one of the big uh, big companies and they they almost they, they made it mandatory that you needed to pre-clean and you actually had to purchase pre-cleaning jars um, to so that you don't get your original cleaning jars yep. dirty. 
Um, yep. and, and one thing I don't like about the pre-cleaning process is actually how they leave the barrel, the mainspring barrel inside. Um, that always kind of gets me sometimes. Um, Why? Because the, the justification is that you should remove as little as possible and then run it through the cleaner. Oh, so the sure. original original pre-cleaning process um, really just required you to remove the the calendar so that you don't uh, damage the calendar, um, and you removed the oscillating weight, and you uh, you remove as much as the automatic system as possible so that it's just a bare movement with the mechanical gear chain, pallet fork, and balance wheel, everything intact. Um, and you actually just run it through the pre-cleaner in that form itself. So you don't even what? remove the barrel. You don't remove nothing. That was the original pre-cleaning process that always got me. What uh, solution? What solution did the pre-clean? Regular, regular cleaning solution. So your first regular, your regular first one with ultrasonic, and then your regular rinsing solution. So the reason why they had you purchase separate pre-cleaning, uh, separate cleaning jars, was for to, to clearly separate the pre-cleaning jars from the regular cleaning jars. Um, and, and the biggest problem for me was that the so the 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 lubricants in the mainspring barrel um I, some of these companies swear by swear by by saying that there's nothing really wrong with doing that um but watchmaking 101 everyone always tells you never to put the mainspring inside the cleaning solution um and you know, i guess you know why right yeah of course okay but you want to enlighten the read you want to enlighten the listeners oh it strips the coating because the mainspring comes pre-coated from the factory um, you know, so that when you, when you actually don't run into the cleaners, the ammonia and the rinse solution doesn't strip that, that, uh, that coat that's on the mainspring. Um, but, but listen, people have been cleaning mainsprings for years. Um, and then they've recoded it, right? And then, you know, back then people used to put D5 all over the mainspring so that it would have that, that, that coat of oil on it. You you want to know something funny? I was actually taught um, when you get a brand new mainspring. I was taught that you shouldn't um, what's the, you shouldn't lubricate the mainspring right away. You should actually clean the mainspring before using it. So strip the mainspring of the lubrication, and then relubricate it. Yeah. So you were taught to to clean it off. I mean, back in the days, you were taught to clean it off with solvent H. And then from there, relubricate it um, with 8200 slightly. Mm. You, you would run it straight down through the entire mainspring and you would install it that way. Mm. But, but that's old school. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm glad watchmaking is not, it's not, we're not, we're not using a sperm whale right now for lubrication. Well, yeah, you're right. We're not, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thank you for um, the engineering feats of, of uh, the watch industry. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, speaking of sperm oil, I mean, what do you think? Do you like the old process better? Or do you like the new process better? Because the old process, people would actually their watches would automatically clump up every three to four months, and that would require new service. Uh, that would require you know, additional service, but you know, that back maintained in the, the parts and pivots and wheels and pinions and everything. Back in the days, at every train station, there was a there was a watchmaker to maintain all the clocks and everything so oh i didn't know that I mean, really yeah 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 you know those old hamilton rail watches um you know there was almost a watchmaker at every stop really yeah that's a shit ton of watchmakers yeah i mean there was a shit ton of those rail watches because they would synchronize the time 
um on the on oh the train I see what you're saying. Oh, you know? saying like on, so, the, on the transcontinental trains where they yeah, go yeah, across yeah. America. Yeah. Or something. Oh. yeah, well, they weren't on the train itself. I, I believe they were in the station. So oh. when you when you would dock in, they were like here, here's the 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 rail watch, and they would you know ensure that all the other timepieces are. are now were they were they contract workers or were they paid for oh, the yeah. government? Uh, I would oh, think they were they were employed by the railroad. Oh shit, that's pretty cool. I did not know that. Wow, yeah. look at you, Henry. So, so and the only reason only reason why I knew this is uh is at my at my employee at Flash Group, um most most of you guys are in North America, you'll probably know this name, Dan Fenwick. Um but he this guy is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to like vintage American watches. And he obviously retired after like forty five years of service at Swatch Group. And that anyway, wasn't yeah, yeah. that was that wasn't intentional, right? Like he was working at Hamilton. Hamilton got bought by Swatch Group. And then he went to go work somewhere else. And that company got bought by you know Swatch Group. So everywhere he went, he just owned the Swatch Group. Swatch Group, but essentially. So. Wow. Jeez, I I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. That was an interesting segue. Yeah. Right, so let's see what other questions yeah. we have. Tell me what else you you want to learn. Um, someone sorry, tell, me, tell me what else I can teach you. <laughs> I'll show you something. Uh, the next question is, uh, do you have to go to school to be a great watchmaker? Um, here's the thing. No, you don't. But if you're doing, you're making your own watch, it helps if you have, um, the correct schooling. Right, George Daniel didn't never went to school for watchmaking, but if he did, it would have solved. Uh, he would have made his watch a lot easier because he wouldn't be testing trial and error. So I mean, it's kind of it's kind of tough. I mean, what do you think? Don't, don't you do you think going through schooling increases? Uh, uh, incre- shortens actually. I'm sorry. Do you think going to school shortens the sp- the time span it takes to learn watchmaking instead of going through trial and error? It helps, of course. It's like uh, the equivalent I have this for is you don't need a business degree to run a business, but it helps. Oh, true, true. You don't need you don't need running shoes to run, but it helps. You know, having done both, I mean, I think. What do you think about the theory section of it, the watchmaking theory section? Because I think watchmaking theory is one huge aspect that's ne- that's that's neglected, um, as opposed to you know it's, your traditional. It's, it it depends on where you are in your watch education or in your watchmaking, right? Because we all went to school and we all told the calculus teacher, algebra teacher, we're never going to use this shit in real life. Like, <laughs> you know, I still, but then, <laughs> I still, exactly, right? But then, but what if you have your career of choices, engineering uh, and dealing with like, you know, making buildings or working on like structural design and critical infrastructure, then you better be sure your math is on point. You know what I mean? So it depends mm. on where you are in your watchmaking. It will correlate into, you know, what you what you think your focus should be. So if you're sitting there making parts all day and, and prefabricating, uh, you know, vintage Patek pinions, then yes, I'm pretty sure it's important to learn the gear ratio and dimensions and all the other calculations that you need to be able to properly make the part and have the part work for the watch. But if you're sitting at Swatch Group 
or you're seeing a major brand and like you know you have everything readily available then that's maybe that maybe not so economical you know so you so what you're trying to say is essentially it just depends on which 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 field in the watchmaking industry you go into so if you're if you're a watch repairer or if you go into the service side where only thing you do is service then you shouldn't really need theory again theory is good right you should learn it but what I'm saying is whether it's applicable, whether you use it again, that heavily depends on, on what you get into in the field. You know, funny thing you say that because, I mean, before I did the schooling, I, 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 I feel like there were, a, I, think, I think there were a lot of things in the schooling process that actually opened my eyes to certain things. Um, and those golden nuggets have changed different aspects of watchmaking for me but it, it to, to say that schooling is necessary outside of those golden nuggets i've got i think is uh, I, I don't think is right to say uh, um, so like so like i used to work i used to hire a bunch of uh, lwt graduates and and the first thing they do is the first thing they have is essentially all that they have all that theory behind them but no practical application yet or if they do have practical application, it's bound to one, one model or one brand or what specific, a couple specific movements. And instead of being able to Rolex, <laughs> oh, sorry, and did I say that? Don't get me wrong, though. I think I think I mean they're smart individuals. I think they it's a right step toward it's it's the it's a it's a good direction. It's a good step in the right direction and whatnot. But I still feel that one critical aspect that schoolings need to do is the practical aspect instead of just exposing them to one movement or whatnot, have them work on watches that, that are chaotic in the sense where there's no control. Nothing you know I mean? in I, life. I, Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. You, you know, I don't know. Long story short, I think what I'm trying to say is that real life aspect, it doesn't have to make sense. There's no common sense. There's, there's, there's no logical step sometimes, you know, like it, sometimes things just doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, listen, I feel like what you said was spot on. And uh, even to add to that, uh, nothing beats experience, right? You can all steer in the world. If you have no experience, then you j it's just theoretical. Mm. You know, there's no practical aspect of, of your theory. Um, and that doesn't, um, that doesn't translate into real world, right? Like, so are you going to sit there and try to prefabricate uh, a part for a $200 watch or is it more economical for you to put the watch aside, order a part, and just move on with it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, do you think that going the uh, going through the trial and error section and uh, like avoid uh, not avoiding school, but skipping the school section and start getting hands-on experience is a fast-track way to becoming a watchmaker? Or do for you sure. think? Okay. Yeah, because I mean, if you look at combat medics, right? when they deployed in war, like some of these guys, they don't, they don't have, um, they're, they're not, they're not, their schooling is all theory for them on how to like suture and how to like deal with like combat wounds. But when you're, when they're in like the zone and someone's bringing you one of their soldiers and he's gushing blood, it's like, you know, that's when, sh that's when shit really hits the fan. Right. Nothing beats that, like that trial, that pressure, uh, and it just makes a diamond, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think I think the fastest way to get into watchmaking is actually just start repairing watches. 
um, especially in the current state of the industry right now where, I mean, you have few, you have fewer and fewer watchmakers each year in the sense of uh, repairing watches and whatnot. Yeah, no, um, I agree, right? Like, that's how, that's how you learn as a watchmaker. Like, first you start taking stuff on, and you're like, wait, how do I do this? Or, you know, and then, then you begin asking questions, then you do your research, then it's like, well, if I'm, I'm making a case, how do I solder the, the lugs to the case to a watch case? Then there's a course for that. Then you go take that course, then you learn something, and then you apply it. Mm. I think this is a perfect segue, actually. The, the next question is actually, do you like being a watch uh, – in terms – I'm going to read it as is because it sounds a little confusing. Do you like being a watch repairer or watch creator? And I'm I'm taking this question in the sense where do you enjoy being the uh, do you enjoy the repairing side of watchmaking or do you enjoy the uh, creation side the fabrication the manufacturing side of watchmaking? Uh, both. I, I genuinely enjoy both. Right. So right now I'm in talks with um, a couple guys in Switzerland, work on a, like a hush hush project for a private client um, here in New York. But you know part of it is is manufacturing stuff and and specking out the designs and going to, to, to different really high-end independent watchmakers and sourcing parts for this special watch or this special project I'm working on. And then on top of that, I have another client in Singapore that we're talking with where we're designing. Um, he's going to be featuring independent watchmakers' um, movement design. So you know, oh. I'm in talk with an, another a couple people in Switzerland for, for uh, you know, to be able to assist design or help me with the design I, I have in mind. Now, and it'll be a collaboration, obviously, because so, it's not like, you know, I'm going to feature them because, you know, I'm the design part of it and they did all the labor. So, you know. So when you say you did the design, you're, you're saying you did like the CAD drawing or you did the physical, you did the physical drawing or are you actually creating? Yeah, like a very, a very, no, no, no. It's a, it's a 60... 6798, I believe, and you know, 67. I was about to say 6798, yeah. man. <laughs> New caliber, buddy. <laughs> New caliber. That's a, that's a WMP caliber. All right, so what you're assisting no. with the 6498? Yeah, so the you know, it, it was a, a project scope that was specced out from, from a guy in Singapore or, or a well, well known watch brand in Singapore. Um, you know, he's, you know, reaching out and kind of establishing his base in New York. And part of it was, was to find partners like myself and kind of like to manage his after sales service aspect of it so that, you know, he can focus on selling. Whereas my team here can focus on actually doing, you know, most of the servicing and stuff that he won't have to worry about shipping back and forth between, between countries. So, Hmm. Okay. All right, so let me let me get to the next question. Um, this is from this one's from Tony. You you, <laughs> the, Tony from the group from the VIP chat. Um, Anthony, he he says, uh, how do you and Henry keep enjoying your craft after all these all these years? What does it imply? Um, by my question, I meant you both went through a lot of places and had a lot of experiences in the field. Could you summarize your path and progression? And explain what it takes for you to keep enjoying watchmaking years after years, assuming you still enjoy it. There is no logical progression. I swear to you, when I was done with my apprenticeship and I, I finished um, uh, my university degree in accounting, I was done with watchmaking. I sold my tools. I went to investment banking. 
I was like, never again. Like, I'm, you know, I don't have to work my hands anymore. You know, I have a degree, right? Like, I achieved a goal I thought I wanted to achieve yeah. in watchmaking, right? Which was to, you know, have some money when I was a kid and to support myself going through college so that, you know, I didn't have to take on any loans. Um, and from there, after investment banking, you know, like, you, you see another, the business side of things. Uh, and, uh, and the economy crashed, and guess what jobs are, were, were, were readily available as a watchmaker, right? Mm. So um, it kind of like naturally bled back in for me from, from a couple years of not being on the bench to back in, back at it, you know, working for Omega and, and uh, Swatch Group brands. And then from there, like, obviously, I had a, it was a, there was a, choice um i had to make was either a go to switzerland and kind of be a trainer for omega which would entail like um training the middle east uh, not middle east it would train the asian division uh for for omega switzerland or the option was to go work for Audemars Piguet, and mm. you know obviously i went with ap and and then the rest is history. So now, do you still enjoy watchmaking? Yeah, I do. It's um, it's the people you meet. It's it's the work you do. At the end of the day, you're breaking up. Hello. Oh, we've lost Henry. Hello, can you hear me? No, I'm here. Sorry about that. No, yeah. Are you saying? Uh, you know, at the end of the day. You know, I don't I don't know how I feel about this question. I I I do agree with you in a couple of points where it is the people you meet, it's the relationships you build. Um, it, taking a watch from start to finish that doesn't work or is inanimate, you know, um, and and making it work again and, and having a function, having a beating again, like that part is fulfilling uh, in and of itself. You know, it might not feel like much when you complete it, but. Um, in the grand scheme of things, when you look back at it, you know, you, you took something that wasn't working, you repaired it from start to finish, and it's now running perfectly fine until the next time you touch it. Um, that stuff I enjoy. But I think everything else in the watchmaking, I don't know if it's probably just the way I grew up in it. Like, I've, I've never had an interest in it. Um, I probably, I mean, I, I'm probably hurting myself by saying this, but I probably still don't enjoy it. But uh, I do appreciate it for for what it's done and what it's given me, um, and I think maybe that's I, I think I'm, I'm more of an oddball when I say this, but like watchmaking is something where I do it because it still keeps me sharp, and it's something that I know I need to continue doing if I want to uh, keep excelling in the craft. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and you know, you're not the only one, right. That, that has become disenchanted with watchmaking. I know a bunch of watchmakers who I used to work with that are no longer in the field, right. That, that have left the profession, left the schooling, left all the stuff that, that, you know, that that was provided to go into, um, something completely different. But but speaking of this, I think I think almost everybody who started watchmaking. I mean, look at all the people who first started watchmaking back in the days. All the all the old school immigrants, all these individuals who started watchmaking because that was their only option. 
right? Like these are the people in the industry who are cool to talk to because they're they're from all different facets of life, and I find their personalities are interesting, very very interesting individuals, um, as opposed to the people who actually join watchmaking because that's what they enjoy doing and they've gone interviewed through that uh, venue. Um, it's two different personalities and when you when you meet them like the, the individual who actually enjoys watchmaking versus the individual who actually who actually had to do watchmaking because it was necessary that's like that in almost every every craft right like no one <clears throat> likes to do construction maybe no one likes to do like you know no one wants to become a plumber or you know, they just fall kind of into the trade of of like you know this pays the bills let's continue doing this you know and then whatever hopes and dreams that they had before was kind of like crushed with the fact that they have to make a living. Now, what I think separate, I think what I think what I think uh, what I think the both both of them have in common is the fact uh, is the consistency and perseverance to continue watchmaking through tough times. Um, how, how often have you I mean, how often do you hear people graduate from watchmaking school and they quit within like a year or two after going to the field? Uh, it's way too common. Yeah, because uh, again, uh, in one aspect, they're used to, um, uh, they were in a two, three-year environment or even four years in some European schools, and they're sheltered from a lot of the, the client wants and needs and the pressure of, you know, running a workshop or maintaining your workshop, you know, because it's not always like, can I service this watch? It's, you know, it's client relations it's uh, managing expectations it's it's under promising over delivering which mm. is usually should be Stop. the case but normally <laughs> they over promise under deliver and then you know that's the, here therein lies the problem right now is that something that you do your company do you i mean i tend to i try to uh, overestimate and really deliver before the expectations but is that something your company does as well yeah, yeah, we we try. We we you know sometimes bake in longer lead times um, because sometimes it does require the longer lead times. You know, that's just the average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. How, what's the average time you tell someone for a service? I mean, I know it depends on the watch, but like your average. So there's a couple factors. It depends on the amount of work the workshop has today. The uh, the um. The model, the brand, the average. What's up? Is it depends on the model and the brand? No, it depends on the the workload we have, um, the amount of you know technical evaluations that the shop has to do. Um, It's it's a bunch of factors, right? So normally the lead time we have is for one week, one week for a technical evaluation, and then after the evaluation, if you accept it. Uh, it's uh, you know normally three to six weeks within that ballpark, right? Like mm. I, I, you know, just to account for any issues that might come up. If there are no issues, you'll have it back, you know, within that that three to four week time frame. If there are issues, it'll be communicated to you what the issue is, right? So like we we just I I took in um, a dear buddy of mine's. Um, Vintage lapis style gold Rolex, um, and oh. initially it was the washer running smooth. Like you put it in a time machine, it looked it looked decent. It didn't look like it needed anything, 
right? So I was like, all right, maybe like it won't need anything. But then like when it got deeper into the movement, it's like we found this uh, the calendar cam dancing thing, whatever it's called. Um, we found <laughs> a hairline crack on it. Um, and eventually the hairline, that, that's why, you know, there were some issues with it. But if we didn't catch that over time, then that, that hairline crack would have turned into a crack. And that those shards would have like, those metal pieces would have been in the movement itself. Mm. So, you know, like, it's a good thing we caught that early on. And obviously I communicated with them, let them know, like, this brand, this, this new watch you got won't be on your wrist because, you know, we're still having issues sourcing parts for this because because of uh, shelter in place and all the other watch companies shut shut down so funny you mentioned that there's um what are you what are your thoughts about cracked dials and clients wanting to keep them cracked dials um listen that's if you want to walk around with a cracked dial that's fine right but it's up to the watchmaker to prevent any further or if the watchmaker is good enough, they will try to prevent any of that shards or any of the, the debris or residue from that cracked dial from falling into the movement. So mm. maybe on the back end, they can, you know, solder it or like have a plate that, 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 that kind of covers up that, that crack so it doesn't bleed into the movement and mess up the movement. But I mean, whatever the client wants is kind of like, it's it's kind of like on them, right? Like you 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 let them know the repercussions, right? Like the cracked dial, the, you know, the paint on the dial is gonna chip, it's gonna flake, it's gonna like over time erode, and it's gonna cause issues for your movement. But if this is what you want, then you know, here's your watch. There's no guarantee. Like you essentially avoid any 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 warranty, warranties yeah. that, that I would have after servicing your watch. See, I mean, I'm dealing with one right now. Um, a client actually has a uh, very, very old lacquered dial, and the dial is starting to flake and peel. And uh, one of the re- one of the requests was to keep it. And um, it's tough knowing it's tough knowing the consequences of wanting to keep a dial like that because I know it's going to make its way into the movement and kill the service cycle, and ultimately so having the watch come back. Why don't you have? Let them know about the issue with this, and just put the dial aside. Like, hey, listen, that's what the dials. Yeah. Like, I, I, I've told people that before. You know, like instead, because normally when you send your watches, watches into you know um, any of the big name brands, they'll take that dial, throw it in the trash can, put a new one on, like, well, and they'll send the wa- new watch back to you, right? And mm-hmm. they'll that'll obviously devalue any value you had in your vintage watch. So you know, I tell them, listen, at this current state, like, I don't recommend this. We could, A, if you want to wear it, we can put on a, a different dial, and then you, you can have this dial and put it in a safe somewhere. So when you want to sell it, you can put it on again, you know? Yeah, there's some manufacturers, man, who I feel like they're almost ironclad when it comes to their stuff. Like, it's yes, yes or no, you know what I mean? If, it, if no, you don't Rolex, want to do it, then... Rolex is one of them. Hey, man, they, they get it done. Rolex. But they get it we'll done. Take, we'll take that vintage watch and turn it into a brand new watch for you. Like eliminate a million dollar watch, turn into like a twenty thousand dollar watch. Oh yeah, that's easy. Because they they will replace everything, right? That's that's within their job specs. You know, that's that's what they do. So another reason to support your local watchmaker, you know. Yes, or in your case, you would look at longevity of the timepiece. So you you would like you you appreciate the fact that it depends. It depends because if the watch is 
$3,000 in my eyes, but if I keep it the same and it's going to be worth half a million dollars, then I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I won't, I won't even get a service then. Yeah. yeah. I would do the same thing. But then also you run into the issue of having a, a, a rusted movement in the bag if you don't have someone to look at it, you know? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Let me take a look at this. What other questions? Favorite music style? Mm. This has nothing to do with watchmaking. It's nothing to do with watchmaking. I listen to I listen to everything, anything and everything, right? Like, um, rap, hip hop, techno, freaking jazz, rap. Um, yeah, dude. When I'm driving, uh, or I need to get point A to point B fast. Oh, look at you, speedster, huh? Putting out fifty cents. Wankster. <laughs> oh boy. And I'm speeding. And and then you know, obviously Phil Collins, um Giovanna, you listen I listen to everything. You know, like there's, there's like you know ATB, DJTS, so like I don't there's no one I don't listen to, right? It depends on the mood, depends on what I'm doing. You know, I'll I'll, I'll put on some Chopin uh if I'm working on a document. Uh, when I'm training, like I'll put on some, you know, M and M when I'm trying to chill out early in the morning, I'll put on Summertime Sadness, Alana Del Rey, and blast oh boy. it. Like, and I would, I would play it so that um, anyone in the general vicinity will know that song as, oh. it's Henry's wake, as, it's, as it's Henry's Waking Up theme song. Please don't tell me you're the type of guy who puts a song on repeat over and over and over again if you like something. Oh, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't you? I like it, so I want to listen to it over and over and over again. And if people are generally around the vicinity, that's on them. They'll like that song too, oh, or boy. they'll start singing with me by like the fourth, the fifth, the sixth time. For some reason, I picture you listening to Mad World when you when you haven't watched that comes back. <laughs> <laughs> no, Hello. it's a, it's it's Hello, Hello Darkness. darkness. <laughs> Oh boy! All right, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Um, this question is: I know your thoughts. I, I know your predictions for the watchmaking trajectory, but what are Henry's thoughts on the current state of watchmaking? Oof, Oof. that's a loaded statement. So first and foremost, um, I am in a very lucky position, right? I'm fortunate to have to do something I enjoy doing with a team of people that also are with me as well. And, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't as lucky as, as I am, right? So, you know, I, I posted within the, the, our track, like our, our personal track group, someone needs help or anything, you know, like if there's anything I do, reach out. Like I'm not a millionaire, by no means have a lot of money, but, you know, I'm, we're all in this kind of together, in this predicament, right? So, um I think we'll we'll all get through it. You know, it's just a, it's it's a bump in the road, um, like with every other bump in the road. Sometimes some some might take longer than others, but eventually everything will bounce back over time. Do you think the watchmaking will be back better than ever, or do you think watchmaking will just be a former show? You know, it's tricky. Because this current landscape, if it hasn't shown you anything other than nothing is set in stone. No one knew Basel Fair 
SIHH, you know, like all these like big names were not going to, we're going to stop doing shows. Once brand names start pulling out, like there goes majority of their funding, right? So nothing is set in stone and to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say one thing and like something else is going to happen, right? but I know that people are resilient. And, you know, like cars, like vintage cars and, and mechanical and, and pens and, and any other, like, this is, no one needs to have a lock. It's True. not an absolute need. You can pick up your phone, you can turn on your computer, open your, uh, your mobile tablet, and the time is there. There's a billion dollar, a trillion dollar industry behind maintaining that, like, centralized time to make sure it's perfect. And it'll beat any mechanical timepiece in timekeeping, you know, to this day, mm-hmm. unless you're a quartz watch and that's a different story. But, you know, as far as timekeeping, this is a, this is not something that, that's important, right? Mm-hmm. To other people, there's values that this timepiece has. This mechanical timepiece speaks to them. Yeah. But that's not like, it's not bread. It's not water. It's not critical infrastructure, you know? So to, you know, I feel like this is, Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's tough, man. I think, uh, I think watchmaking, I, I think, I think post COVID, I think watchmaking will be better than before. I think, um, but then again, I don't know, maybe that's just my biased views. It's my opinion. Okay. I know a lot of people will disagree with me. I've actually had several individuals reach out to me and disagree with me. And that's fine. I think, um, like a lot, I think that with the whole COVID situation, e-commerce has been the breaking point for me in saying this uh, because back in the days almost every single watch brand dealt with difficulty in increasing e-commerce sales because of that face-to-face interaction that a lot of these clients want now with the whole COVID situation and all the the, uh, global lockdown let's just say um, I think that's increased the likelihood and bridged that gap for people and I think post-COVID I think that's going to be even you're going to have the return of face-to-face sales and offline sales with the added now on uh, added increase of sales from e-commerce. So here's the thing about that is um, I had a discussion with a couple of buddies about that, right? I feel like the people who already did business with you, who already had the, the client experience, who had that handshake on Madison Avenue or that champagne glass um, before the deal was shut, I feel like those people will go to e-commerce. That's good. But you mm-hmm. won't get a you won't get someone brand new walking off the street onto a website like doing like purchasing for that brand experience because right now these three months these three four months like you know that experience is gone oh right? for sure there's, for sure and i think that was that was one of my uh that was one of my talking points i think the the next biggest issue that the industry is going to have now is making that transition from offline to online and what the brands are going to be worried about is making that is having that same experience offline now online you know what i mean that's gonna be their one of their biggest it's hard. issues yeah it's gonna be really tough because most yeah, and that's a hurdle right because a lot of people i mean there's there's a good like me and you know we're in the, we're <laughs> like watchmaking servicing it's a repeat client system right so if you do good if you do right by people the first time they normally recommend you and you normally get their work again right yeah Right, but but for for sales for retail, that's not the case, right? 
you're anticipating um, new client, fresh blood, right? To be able to sell, to have the experience. And why do you think all these stores on Madison Ave are all so fancy? But see, right? I, I think the transition is actually going to be a lot simpler than they think. I think, so the same concept of having a, a service, uh, the, the same concept of having a sales associate help you in person will be the same way that someone would have an online, private online chat with someone that's one-on-one and it automatically becomes their designated salesperson. You know what I mean? And then from there, it's just ensuring that constant communication, that transparency, that, that, uh, I, I, that catering. I, 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 disagree. I completely disagree. Why? How, how many times have you sent a text message or sent an email where the tonality, the context is completely taken out of place? Well, the you know? medium, the, well, that I understand, but the medium doesn't right, so necessarily like, have to be text. You know, like they could be communicating through the phone, you know, but that initial transaction was online. Because very seldom would you, are you going to have anyone just go online and purchase something first, you know, right away. It, it's a matter of they're going to be browsing for a little bit. They're going to revisit the web page several times through over a couple weeks. And then finally, one night after like eight drinks in or one morning when they're like most productive, they're going to make that snap call and say, all right, I want this. I mean, that's just my that, – that's, that's just looking at – behavior that's kind of looking at how I would like for example for me like sometimes I don't know about you but sometimes when I want to purchase something from Amazon let's just say the one when I put it in my cart like I'm destined I'm like I'm hell bent on purchasing but when I put it in my cart I will second guess myself and say eh, do I really need it maybe not and then I'll leave it in the cart and revisit like revisit it maybe I don't know two three times in a week and then maybe one of those days I'm just like all right you know what screw it I'm not gonna think about this thing. I'm just gonna pick it up okay all right, next, next question. This is boring me. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to be a diva, but like, you know, I want to keep everyone entertained. I want to make sure that this is providing either A, entertainment, or B, uh, information. So let's, let's stick to the watchmaking of bullshit, buddy. Okay. Top pet peeves in watch clients. So the last one was top pet peeves in repairs. Uh, this, the same person put top pet peeves for watch clients. Mm. Uh, you, how about you slip, start off with that one, Anthony? Top pet peeves? Um, mm-hmm. I think that the pet, one of my pet peeves is uh, uh, clients who... <sighs> okay, well, first things first. Having educated clients is very, very important. Um, but at the same time, you can also be overeducated and bring too much to the table. For example, if a client's coming to me with a watch repair, I don't necessarily, I, I don't need them to tell me everything that's, um, everything that they think is wrong with the watch. I just need them to tell me what is wrong with the watch. I don't need them to tell me what they think is the solution to the problem. I don't know if that makes okay. any sense. I think what you're driving at is, I think what you're driving at the same issue I have, right? A, I don't need someone to tell me how to do my job. Yes. Right? And B, that's a simple way to put it again. I'm a, <laughs> again, everybody like watchmaking and no bullshit and like bullshit. But so here's the thing, right? I appreciate you not telling me how to do my job because if, if let's say you can be a medical profession, but you still won't tell um, a doctor like this is this is what you should do for me. Yeah. Uh, so you know, let me do my job. But B, I appreciate all the information that you have that you bring to the table, right? Like, yes. I, yes. I. I, I I like the fact that you said within during this time, my watch was not keeping time, but during this time, it was working fine. 
And then I will also ask you, like, what are the environmental factors? Did you run more that day? Did you exercise more? Yeah. Were you at the gym? You know what I mean? Like, all this stuff helps. Helps me craft a hypothesis on what might be the issue with the timepiece uh, when I, when I kind of take it apart, knowing this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, what are your thoughts on uh, when clients tell you, um, like, when you tell them the solution and they tell you no? So, for example, let's just say a watch. Uh, let's say a, someone comes to you will come back and they say, uh, the, my watch isn't keeping, on, uh, keeping time. And you ask them if they wound it 30, 40 times. And they say they did. But let's say you put it in the reader and clearly after winding it 34 times, it's running fine. Then I ask them, maybe there's something else that's, maybe there's an underlying issue of something they're doing to the watch. I'm not good. You know, like sometimes people, you know, either A, won't wind it, B, won't, won't wear it long enough. Or they'll wear it without winding it. Um, and yeah, and the issue is like what I'm trying to replicate is I'm trying to replicate the issue of the combat. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not at odds here because I want to also figure out what's wrong. There are times where it's like I'm not 100% correct. Like we, we had a recent vintage GMT with a calendar, like one of the two or three of the teeth were like slightly marred. Um, and every time the calendar would hit 12 o'clock, the watch would stop. Right? Mm. A, the watch, the watch automatic system worked perfectly. B, we wound it 40 times, the watch ran, like as it should. But every time you would, you would put it down to do the final timing, it would stop at 12. And like, okay, so, so it's not A, the automatic, it's not B, the winding, something else is the issue. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so you would drill down in the watch and then, then you find the issue. Hmm. All right, well. I guess that answers our pet peeves. I guess we have the same pet peeves. I know, right? Uh, Stop telling me how to do my job. Thoughts, <laughs> thoughts on watches as an investment? Uh, it is... It's good. I mean, I, I like it. I mean, a lot of people buy Patek's. They buy APs. They buy, they buy precious, precious metal, so to speak. So platinum, gold, uh, silver... See, I used to think that. Now, let me ask you this: the practical side of applica- the practical application of it is, how often are you going to sell it? Like, does it how how long does it hold its value? You know, sometimes it's not up to you to sell; it's up to like maybe your grandkids, you know, or it's maybe up to whoever, you know. Because let's be realistic: like a lot of people, like they buy these vintage watches, like these like really high end watches from these auction houses, and they shove it into a safe. They're not going to take it out five years later and resell yeah. it. I mean, some people do, right? Some people are like, are like, oh, the market's hot now. I'm going to go like release a bunch of uh, vintage Omega Speedmasters, which which was the case a couple years ago, yeah. right? Like the the Speedmaster market was like it was it was a there was an influx of like caliber 321, you know, and then the the vintage market went up and everyone was selling these like you know 20, 30, 40 a pop. Now, one thing I don't really, I still don't agree with this in the watchmaking side. I still don't agree with how the market value, like I understand capitalistic ideas, like how, how the market determines value of something. But like I see some of these posts on Instagram and it's showing the value of some of these watches going up or going down. But then you look, you look at the source and it's like they're just basing the source off an average of how much a watch is, is put on price for on a website. 
And I'm like, that doesn't that that, that that's not how it works. You know what I mean? It, it, yes, it is. I mean, look, I, the, I get because it's and it's core fundamental. It's supply and demand. Sure. If there is little little. That, if there yeah. is more demand, little supply that drives the numerical value of the timepiece cells. Like I understand the, you know the I understand the comp value of things, like the comparable values of something exact model, exact things. I understand that, but the uh, for for someone to go on and say this is the current price of something, it's not factual because that's that's not the price that people are buying it at right now. That's the price that sellers are putting it at. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. So if you look at the stock market, there's a sell price and there's a bid price. Both the prices normally very different. Yeah. So yeah. So there's there's what's actually listed, and there's what is actually being sold for. Maybe that's why I don't really like vintage watches so much. <laughs> I don't know. Like I think Listen, like... it's it's hard to ascertain the um, the value because you have to put like there's a lot of factors that people that you have to equate into. The value of vintage timepiece, and uh, James from Analog Shift uh, and and his team—I I don't mean to name drop, but like they, they do it well, right? Like they, they do a good job in New York and over, overall over the world um, pricing vintage timepieces. Yeah, I, I I just hope everyone knows that I'm only joking when it comes to me saying that I just like vintage watches. Although I do have a little disdain for vintage. <laughs> he hates. He hates it. See his post on Patina. Oh boy! Oh, actually, this segue into this question already. Uh, I know you dislike vintage, but what about Henry? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to ask that question already. <laughs> no, I'm I'm cool with it. I, I, you cool I, with it? Like every every timepiece that's brought over to me, it's it's a book. It's a puzzle waiting to be solved. It's a book waiting to be read, right? So as you as you pull back the pages. Um, yeah, we understand the movement and we get it running again. Friends like, yes, score. I, I know, I know some people like to work on vintage watches because there's that added flair of like that unknown variable, like that stuff. I can understand, but from a I don't, uh, I don't like the unknown variable, right? That's the issue, right? But the unknown variable sometimes, but you're gonna like, deal with that with vintage watches all the time. There's always that unknown yes. variable, yeah. Yeah, and then the the hard part is like, uh, uh, you have to put your thinking hat on and like, hey, how can I solve this problem? I can't tell if that's a passive aggressive dig at me again. <laughs> you, you need no, your thinking no, 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 never, never, no, 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 never. I mean, you you don't need one. You you constantly have your. Uh huh. So, uh, I'm not trying to take a dig at. I would never, uh, Anthony. Uh, you know, I respect you too much. Okay, so we're gonna go, so <laughs> we're gonna answer this last question, and then we'll, we'll call it wraps. It's been about an hour so far. Um, the this question is the uh, I know you preach the application of watchmaking often. Does this apply to every watchmaker? Wait, what? I, I th- what I think what the question is saying is okay. So uh, I've been preaching, let's just say, the applications of watchmaking to everyday life, right? So the question okay. here is saying. Does every single does this apply to every watchmaker? Does every single watchmaker is every single watchmaker able to do this as well? Uh that's that's a loaded that's a loaded statement. Uh, <laughs> there are people who can think out can take something can take a set of 
skills conceptualize it and apply it to their lives. And there are other people who take a set of skills of what they've learned and like execute those set of skills based upon what they only learned. Mm. You know, so there are people, some people can grow from it. Some people will stick to like, you know, like if you draw a circle around an ant, they won't know any better, but they'll stick within that circle. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So yeah. if I go to the park right now, I drew a circle around the ant, they'd, they'd be trapped. Yeah, put put an ant. I, I, I saw it on YouTube, so it must be true. So it's a piece of white paper. Oh, boy. Uh, pull it, get a tweezer, pick up an ant, put an ant on the white piece of paper, and then draw a circle around it with a pen. And he'll stay within that circle. Huh. Okay. I have to put that to the test. Yeah, please. <laughs> let me know. Let me know your findings. Uh, uh, and don't don't hurt. I don't want you to hurt your your brain too too much brain cells. Uh huh. Uh-huh. In doing hey, that, did you see this new egg challenge that's going around online? Uh, essentially, what they do is they put an egg between your bicep and your forearm, right in between the crease of your elbow, and you flex. Okay, and you can't assist your arm, but you flex. And the egg challenge is: can you crack the egg with the egg in between your biceps and your forearm? Did you try it? I have not tried it yet, but I'm very interested to know <laughs> if you can try, if you can crack it. You know, you know what you should also do. You should go uh, go on Facebook and tag someone on a picture and say like, "This is like my ten pictures for ten days or something." Oh, that nomination, like that. that nomination thing. I think yeah, you should go do that as well. I think that's so stupid. I think that's so silly. Yeah. Like, I don't see the value in that. Yeah, I don't see the value of putting egg between your between your, hey, your biceps of your forearms. Putting an egg between your biceps of your forearms for shits and giggles, okay? <laughs> nominating some nominating someone for some ten day stupid ass challenge doesn't do much. Some people do it for shits and giggles. Okay, we're gonna end, <laughs> we're gonna end it up now. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Do you want you have anything you want to promote? Anything you want to say? No, no, no. You know, thank you guys for listening. Um, you know, feel free to like, add, subscribe. Um, we're thinking of adding, I'm thinking of adding more people. Like, I was talking to Heinrich. I was going to chat with a lot of, like, other industry personnel to oh, kind of, like, poke them, get them on the show and and, uh, and pick their brains on, on different things. And please keep the questions coming, you know, like, keep all this, you know, this, this is good, right? They're trying to break up the monotony of this. Three four, three, four months of shelter in place, like craziness. Yeah. Hopefully, this brightens up your lives. <laughs> All right. We're going to end it up there, guys. Take, take care. Um, if you guys haven't, like Henry said, like or subscribe. Uh, if you want to leave a review, please do so. Um, other than that, I hope you guys have a great day and take care. Hugs and kisses. <laughs>